0: Preface of Sylvian Bruno. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Perry. Sylvian Bruno by Lewis Carroll. Preface Is all our life then but a dream, seen faintly in the golden gleam, athwart time's dark, resistless stream? Bowed to the earth with bitter woe, or laughing at some rarey show, we flutter idly to and fro. Man's little day in haste we spend, and, from its merry noontide send, no glance to meet the silent end. One little picture in this book, The Magic Locket, at page 77, was drawn by Miss Alice Havers. I did not state this on the title page, since it only seemed due to the artist of all these, to my mind, wonderful pictures, that his name should stand alone. The descriptions, at pages 386 and 387, of Sunday as spent by children of the last generation, a quoted verbatim from a speech made to me by a child friend, and a letter written to me by a lady friend. The chapters headed Fairy Sylvie and Bruno's Revenge are a reprint with a few alterations of a little fairy tale which I wrote in the year 1867, at the request of the late Mrs. Gatty for Aunt Judy's magazine which she was then editing it was in eighteen seventy four i believe that the idea first occurred to me of making it the nucleus of a longer story as the years went on i jotted down at odd moments all sorts of odd ideas and fragments of dialogue that occurred to me who knows how with a transitory suddenness that left me no choice but either to record them then and there or to abandon them to oblivion sometimes one could trace to their source these random flashes of thought as being suggested by a book one was reading "'or struck out from the flint of one's own mind "'by the steel of a friend's chance remark. "'But they also had a way of their own "'of occurring a propos of nothing, "'specimens of that hopelessly illogical phenomenon, "'an effect without a cause. "'Such, for example, was the last line of "'The Hunting of the Snark, which came into my head, "'as I have already related in The Theatre for April 1887. "'Quite suddenly, during a solitary walk, and such, again, have been passages which occurred in dreams, and which I cannot trace to any antecedent cause whatever. There are at least two instances of such dream suggestions in this book. One, my lady's remark, it often runs in families, just as a love for pastry does, at page 88. The other, Eric Linden's badinage age about having been in domestic service, at page 332 and thus it came to pass that i found myself at last in possession of a huge unwieldy mass of literature, l-i-t-t-e-r-a-t-u-r-e if the reader will kindly excuse the spelling which only needed stringing together upon the thread of a consecutive story to constitute the book i hoped to write only the task at first seemed absolutely hopeless and gave me a far clearer idea than i have ever had before of the meaning of the word chaos and I think it must have been ten years or more before I had succeeded in classifying these odds and ends sufficiently to see what sort of a story they indicated, for the story had to grow out of the incidents, not the incidents out of the story. I am telling this, in no spirit of egoism, but because I really believe that some of my readers will be interested in these details of the genesis of a book, which looks so simple and straightforward a matter when completed, that they might suppose it to have been written straight off, page by page, as one would write a letter, beginning at the beginning, and ending at the end. It is, no doubt, possible to write a story in that way, and, if it be not vanity to say so, I believe that I could, myself, if I were in the unfortunate position, for I do hold it to be a real misfortune, of being obliged to produce a given amount of fiction in a given time, that I could fulfil my task, and produce my tale of bricks, as other slaves have done one thing at any rate i could guarantee as to the story so produced that it should be utterly commonplace should contain no new ideas whatever and should be very very weary reading this species of literature has received the very appropriate name of padding which might fitly be defined as that which all can write and none can read that the present volume contains no such writing i dare not avow sometimes in order to bring a picture into its proper place it has been necessary to eke out a page with two or three extra lines, but I can honestly say I have put in no more than I was absolutely compelled to do. My readers may perhaps like to amuse themselves by trying to detect in a given passage the one piece of padding it contains. While arranging the slips into pages, I found that the passage which now extends from the top of page 35 to the middle of page 38 was three lines too short. I supplied the deficiency not by interpolating a word here and a word there, but by writing in three consecutive lines. Now can my readers guess which they are? A harder puzzle, if a harder be desired, would be to determine as to the gardener's song in which cases, if any, the stanza was adapted to the surrounding text, and in which, if any, the text was adapted to the stanza. Perhaps the hardest thing in all literature, at least I have found it so, by no voluntary effort can I accomplish it, I have to take it as it comes, is to write anything original and perhaps the easiest is, when once an original line has been struck out, to follow it up, and to write any amount more to the same tune. I do not know if Alice in Wonderland was an original story. I was, at least, no conscious imitator in writing it, but I do know that, since it came out, something like a dozen story books have appeared, on identically the same path. The path I timidly explored, believing myself to be the first that ever burst into the silent sea, is now a beaten high road, all the wayside flowers have long ago been trampled into the dust, and it would be courting disaster for me to attempt that style again. Hence it is that in Sylvie and Bruno I have striven with I know not what success to strike out yet another new path, be it bad or good, it is the best I can do. It is written, not for money and not for fame, but in the hope of supplying for the children whom I love some thoughts that may suit those hours of innocent merriment, which are the very life of childhood, and also in the hope of suggesting to them, and to others, some of the thoughts that may prove, I would fain hope, not wholly out of harmony with the grave cadences of life. If I have not already exhausted the patience of my readers, I would like to seize this opportunity, perhaps the last I shall have of addressing so many friends at once, of putting on record some ideas that have occurred to me, as to books desirable to be written, which I should much like to attempt, but may not ever have the time or power to carry through, in the hope that, if I should fail, and the years are gliding away very fast. To finish the task I have set myself, other hands may take it up. First, a child's Bible. The only real essentials of this would be carefully selected passages, suitable for a child's reading, and pictures. One principle of selection which I would adopt would be that religion should be put before a child as a revelation of love, no need to pain and puzzle the young mind with the history of crime and punishment. On such a principle I should, for example, omit the history of the flood. The supplying of the pictures would involve no great difficulty. No new ones would be needed. Hundreds of excellent pictures already exist, the copyright of which is long ago expired, and which simply need photosynchography, or some similar process, for their successful reproduction. The book should be handy in size, with a pretty attractive-looking cover, in clear legible type, and above all, with abundance of pictures, pictures, pictures. Secondly, a book of pieces selected from the Bible, not single texts, but passages of from ten to twenty verses each, to be committed to memory. Such passages would be found useful to repeat to oneself, and to ponder over, on many occasions when reading is difficult, if not impossible. For instance, when lying awake at night, on a railway journey, when taking a solitary walk in old age, when eyesight is failing or wholly lost, and best of all, when illness while incapacitating us for reading or any other occupation, condemns us to lie awake through many weary silent hours. At such a time, how keenly one may realise the truth of David's rapturous cry, Oh how sweet are thy words unto my throat, yea, sweeter than honey unto my mouth. I have said passages rather than single texts, because we have no means of recalling single texts. Memory needs links, and here are none. One may have hundreds of texts stored in the memory, and not be able to recall, at will more than half a dozen and those by mere chance whereas once get hold of any portion of a chapter that has been committed to memory and the whole can be recovered all hangs together thirdly a collection of passages both prose and verse from books other than the bible there is not perhaps much in what is called uninspired literature a misnomer i hold if shakespeare was not inspired one may well doubt if any man ever was that will bear the process of being pondered over a hundred times. Still, there are such passages, enough, I think, to make a goodly store for the memory. These two books of sacred and secular passages for the memory will serve other good purposes besides merely occupying vacant hours. They will help to keep at bay many anxious thoughts, worrying thoughts, uncharitable thoughts, and holy thoughts. Let me say this, in better words than my own, by copying a passage from that most interesting book, robertson's lectures on the epistles to the corinthians lecture forty nine if a man finds himself haunted by evil desires and unholy images which will generally be at periodical hours let him commit to memory passages of scripture or passages from the best writers in verse or prose let him store his mind with these as safeguards to repeat when he lies awake in some restless night or when despairing imaginations or gloomy suicidal thoughts beset him let these be to him the sword turning everywhere to keep the way of the garden of life from the intrusion of profaner footsteps. Fourthly, a Shakespeare for girls, that is, an edition which everything not suitable for the perusal of girls of, say, from ten to seventeen, should be omitted. Few children under ten would be likely to understand or enjoy the greatest of poets, and those who have passed out of girlhood may safely be left to read Shakespeare in any edition, expurgated or not, that they may prefer. But it seems a pity that so many children in the intermediate stage "'should be debarred from a greater pleasure for want of an addition suitable to them. "'Neither Boulders, Chambers, Brandrums, nor Cundell's Boudoir Shakespeare, "'seems to me to meet the want. "'They are not sufficiently expurgated. "'Boulders is the most extraordinary of all. "'Looking through it, I am filled with a deep sense of wonder, "'considering what he has left in, that he should have cut anything out, "'besides relentlessly erasing all that is unsuitable on the score of reverence or decency.' i should be inclined to omit also all that seems too difficult or not likely to interest young readers the resulting book might be slightly fragmentary but it would be a real treasure to all british maidens who have any taste for poetry if it be needful to apologise to any one for the new departure i have taken in this story by introducing along with what will i hope prove to be acceptable nonsense for children some of the graver thoughts of human life It must be to one who has learned the art of keeping such thoughts wholly at a distance in hours of mirth and careless ease. To him such a mixture will seem, no doubt, ill-judged and repulsive, and that such an art exists I do not dispute. With youth, good health, and sufficient money, it seems quite possible to lead, for years together, a life of unmixed gaiety, with the exception of one solemn fact, with which we are liable to be confronted with at any moment, even in the midst of the most brilliant company, or the most sparkling entertainment. A man may fix his own times for admitting serious thought, for attending public worship, for prayer, for reading the Bible. All such matters he can defer to that convenient season, which is so apt to never occur at all, but he cannot defer, for one single moment, the necessity of attending to a message which may come before he has finished reading this page. This night shalt thy soul be required of thee. The ever-present sense of this grim possibility has been, in all ages, note, at the moment when I had written these words, there was a knock at the door, and a telegram was brought to me, announcing the sudden death of a dear friend. An incubus that men have striven to shake off. Few more interesting subjects of inquiry could be found, by a student of history, than the various weapons that have been used against this shadowy foe. Saddest of all must have been the thoughts of those who saw indeed an existence beyond the grave, but an existence far more terrible than annihilation. An existence has filmy. me, Impalpable, all but invisible specters, drifting about through endless ages, in a world of shadows, with nothing to do, nothing to hope for, nothing to love. In the midst of the gay verse of the genial, bon vivant Horace, there stands one dreary word, whose utter sadness goes to one's heart. It is the word exilium, in the well known passage Omnes e odem cogin omnium, versata uniserus ocius, et nos in aeternum, exilium impositora kimbai yes to him this present life spite of all its weariness and all its sorrow was the only life worth having all else was exile does it not seem almost incredible that one holding such a creed should ever have smiled and many in this day i fear even though believing in an existence beyond the grave far more real than horace ever dreamed of yet regard it as a sort of exile from all the joys of life and so adopt horace's theory and say let us eat and drink, for to-morrow we die. We go to entertainment such as the theatre. I say we, for I also go to the play whenever I get a chance of seeing a really good one, and keep at arm's length, if possible, the thought that we may not return alive. Yet how do you know, dear friend, whose patience has carried you through this garrulous preface, that it may not be your lot, when mirth is fastest and most furious, to feel the sharp pang or the deadly faintness which heralds the final crisis, to see with vague wonder, anxious friends bending over you to hear their troubled whispers, perhaps yourself to shape the question with trembling lips. Is it serious? And to be told, yes, the end is near. And, oh, how different all life will look when those words are said. How do you know, I say, that all this may not happen to you, this night? And dare you, knowing this, say to yourself, well, perhaps it is an immoral play, perhaps the situations are a little too risky, the dialogue a little too strong the business a little too suggestive i don't say that conscience is quite easy but the piece is so clever i must see it this once i'll begin a stricter life to-morrow to-morrow and to-morrow and to-morrow who sins in hope who sinning says sorrow for sin god's judgment stays against god's spirit he lies quite stops mercy with insult dares and drops like a scorched fly that spins in vain upon the axis of its pain then takes its doom to limp and crawl, blind and forgot, from fall to fall. Let me pause for a moment to say that I believe this thought, of the possibility of death, if calmly realised and steadily faced, would be one of the best possible tests as to our going to any scene of amusement being right or wrong. If the thought of sudden death acquires, for you, a special horror when imagined as happening in a theatre, then be very sure the theatre is harmful for you, however harmless it may be for others and that you are incurring a deadly peril in going. Be sure the safest rule is that we should not dare to live in any scene in which we dare not die. But, once realise what the true object is in life, that it is not pleasure, not knowledge, not even fame itself, the last infirmity of noble minds, but that it is the development of character, the rising to a higher, nobler, purer standard, the building up of the perfect man, and then, so long as we feel that this is going on, And will, we trust, go on for evermore. Death has for us no terror. It is not a shadow, but a light. Not an end, but a beginning. One other matter may perhaps seem to call for apology: that I should have treated with such entire want of sympathy the British passion for sport, which no doubt has been in bygone days, and is still, in some forms of it, an excellent school for hardihood and for coolness in moments of danger. But I am not entirely without sympathy for genuine sport i can heartily admire the courage of the man who with severe bodily toil and at the risk of his life hunts down some man-eating tiger and i can heartily sympathise with him when he exults in the glorious excitement of the chase and the hand-to-hand struggle with the monster brought to bay but i can look with deep wonder and sorrow on the hunter who at his ease and in safety can find pleasure in what involves for some defenceless creature wild terror and a death of agony deeper if the hunter be one who has pledged himself to preach to men the religion of universal love deepest of all if it be one of those tender and delicate beings whose very name serves as a symbol of love thy love to me was wonderful passing the love of women whose mission here is surely to help and comfort all that are in pain or sorrow farewell farewell but this i tell to thee thou wedding guest he prayeth well who loveth well both man and bird and beast he prayeth best who loveth best All things both great and small. For dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. End of preface. Recording by Lucy Perry, in Bath, on May the 11th, 2009.